The Matheson Pensions Podcast. Presented by Deirdre Cummins, partner in the Employment, Pensions and Benefits Group at Matheson. This podcast series examines the topical legal issues affecting the operation and management of occupational pension schemes in Ireland and is relevant to pension scheme trustees, employers, pension practitioners and industry professionals. Hello and welcome. I'm Deirdre Cummins and this is part two of our seminar on bulk annuity transactions. In this part, Jane McKeever, a senior associate in our pensions group, discusses the pension law considerations for employers and trustees when a bulk annuity transaction is being considered. Darren Marr, head of our financial institutions group, also discusses the insurance law aspects of bulk annuity transactions. So good evening, everyone. Um, As a pensions lawyer, I am going to focus on the pensions law considerations. And while As John mentioned, these transactions are often initiated by employers, given that it's trustees that would be making the investment decision and implementing the decision. It's really trustee considerations that I'm focusing on. And I'd also like to say that uh, while bulk annuity obviously covers both buy-in and buy-out, I'm focusing mostly on buy-ins as I think they're a bit more of an unknown in the Irish market. Buy-outs tend to be more straightforward and I think people are generally more familiar with what goes on there. So from a trustee perspective, I think there's kind of three main questions that need to be asked around bulk annuity uh, transactions. The first being, can you proceed? The second being, are you ready to proceed? And the third being, should you proceed? So looking firstly at can you proceed, and here I'm really thinking about from a regulatory perspective and from the perspective of your trust documentations, is this something that's actually legally permissible? So in terms of investment powers, firstly, essentially, I guess that's the first step for any trustee thinking about a transaction like this. Do they have power under their trust documents to enter into the transaction? Uh, Generally, investment powers under trust documents are very wide. Um, Often they would uh, give a power to the trustees to make any investments that they could if they actually owned the assets themselves. There is a tendency in recent times to list various types of transactions that trustees can enter into. And I think that can give rise then to a bit of confusion over whether you have to have a specific power to enter into a bulk annuity transaction. I don't necessarily think that's the case. I think if you have a broad investment power, you're probably good to go ahead. And often you would have a power to at least invest in insurance policies. I think that's wide enough to cover you. If there is any uncertainty, of course, it would be open to you to make an amendment in any case. Um, Also on the investment power side, it would be very unusual for the employer uh, consent to be required, although it is occasionally there, so it's always worth obviously checking the trust documentation, making sure if you need employer consent that you get that. Um, Then leaving aside the trust documents, we're looking at uh, requirements that are there under the Pensions Act and under the regulations underneath the Pensions Act, which generally uh, are drafted to reflect the provisions of IORP, uh, now IORP 2. So Section 59 1B of the Pensions Act provides that you have to, that trustees in fact have to provide for the proper investment of the scheme resources, both in line with the scheme rules and in line with any regulations that are under the Pensions Act. They're largely referring there to the investment regulations from 2006. Um, There isn't a definition under the Pensions Act of what exactly is meant by proper investment. Um, There's plenty of jurisprudence around it and generally it's thought to be um, 
that trustees have to act prudently when they're making investments, that they have to make investments in a similar way than if they were making investments for someone for whom they felt morally obliged to provide. So under the investment regulations then, there are various requirements, and as I said, often reflecting um, provisions that are in IORP 2, uh, things like having to have your investments properly diversified, having to have investments on regulated markets, but because in, uh, investments in insurance policies are considered really very safe, um, there are kind of exclusions under the investment regulations that mean that those provisions don't actually provide uh, apply to investments in insurance policies. So there's nothing in the investment regulations that would prevent you from making such an investment. Similarly, there, similarly, there are um, rules under the funding standard and uh, funding standard reserve regimes around things like concentration of investment, where you're not permitted to count investments over a certain percentage in a particular asset class when you're preparing your actuarial funding certificate. But again, insurance policies fall outside of that. So there's no concern really from a regulatory perspective um, if this is something that trustees want, want to do and the power is there in their trust documents, they should be free to go ahead and do it. So moving on then, when everyone's happy that they can actually go ahead and do this if they want to. I think there's a number of preparatory points that trustees need to be thinking about, ideally well in advance of uh, going to market or going to insurers looking for uh, pricing on a, on a transaction like this. Uh, firstly, I think it would be well worth educating the trustees or making sure that the trustees are aware of what is really happening in a bulk annuity transaction. I think it's clear from recent statements by the Pensions Authority that uh, trustees are going to be expected to really step up their game in terms of what they understand about their scheme's uh, governance, investment, and how the scheme is being operated. And while it's certainly the case that you'd be delegating a lot of the detail of a transaction like this to specialist advisors, I think trustees would be expected to have a high level understanding at least of what's involved in a transaction like this. Um, Moving on then to look at the benefits under schemes, one of the first points in a bulk annuity transaction is that you go to the insurers with your benefits specification and ask them to uh, provide pricing. Now, it's not uncommon when this is looked at in detail, like what you're insuring here are the benefits that you have specified to the insurer as your benefits, not every benefit that's provided under the scheme. So what you're looking to do is to make sure that there is no gap and unfortunately, it's not uncommon for um, it to be discovered when people actually start to look at the detail of the benefits that are being paid out of the scheme versus the benefits that are actually reflected under the rules. Uh, they're not always perfectly matched, I suppose. You can find that there are benefits being paid that haven't been, uh, that the rules haven't been updated to reflect. Uh, you can also find that benefit changes haven't been made correctly over time. So that's certainly something that needs to be cleaned up before you approach insurers. Um, in terms of data then, and I think this is something that Rachel and Sam are going to go into in a bit more detail, it's a huge issue in transactions like this to have your data in relatively good shape before you go to insurers. Uh, I think from the perspective of GDPR, schemes are probably in a better state than they were some years ago, but there's probably still a fair bit of work to be done in preparing for a bulk annuity transaction. And then a more minor point is that all schemes have a statement of investment policy principles in place, 
some level of consideration needs to be given to whether a transaction like this would be envisaged in that statement of investment policy principles, and if not, whether it requires amendment or whether it requires amendment afterwards to reflect any changes in the investment strategy. So if you have all those things in place and you're happy that you have legal power to enter into this transaction, the next question from a trustee perspective, and I think the one they're probably most concerned about, is should they proceed? And is a transaction like this in line with their duties to the members? I think uh, the, it's been confirmed that the major or the main duty of trustees is to promote the purpose for which the trust was created. And essentially, that's providing the benefits under the scheme as they fall due. A transaction like this should help trustees to achieve that objective if it's properly done. So essentially, you're transferring risk out of the scheme. You're reducing the reliance on the strength of the principal employer to be able to fund the scheme into the future and provide the benefits. And done properly, the transaction should increase the security of members' benefits. So I think um, you know, if, if trustees are taking the proper advice, if they're considering the factors properly and carrying out their due diligence on the insurers, that duty should be met by entering into a bulk annuity transaction. Trustees then are also expected to follow the prudent person rule in terms of um, investments. Again, here I think the focus is probably on doing your due diligence, getting your specialist advice around the uh, strength of the insurers, around capital requirements, um, and around just, I suppose, uh, the contents of the insurance policy and making sure that the benefits are actually going to be paid as you expect, um, or the income stream is going to be received as you expect from the insurer. Another element that might require some consideration there is collateralization. It's not something that we expect to see a whole lot of in the Irish market. In the UK, certainly, it's only used in the very largest transactions. Now, there have been collateralized um, transactions here, and we've worked on one. Uh, it does provide an additional layer of comfort for trustees, but it also significantly increases the cost involved in the transaction and the complexity involved in the transaction. So it's a, a question really of balancing up the worth of it versus the added complexity and cost. And given that for most schemes you're moving from a position where you're relying on an, on an employer, which no matter how strong it might appear, we've all seen uh, very prominent employers run into difficulty in the during the recession, possibly Brexit-related issues. So you're moving from a situation where you're reliant on that employer to a situation where you're relying on an insurer, which is backed up by um, various regulatory requirements and capital requirements. So essentially, you should be moving from a less safe to a safer position. And I think you're meeting your prudent person rule in making an investment of that type. Finally, I think you're looking then at your element six decision-making standard. So um, in that case, the court confirmed that if trustees have taken all relevant advice, they're acting in good faith, they've considered all the relevant factors, um, then if they go ahead and make a decision that another reasonable body of trustees might have made, the decision is unlikely to be challenged or overturned by a court. Uh, it's hard to see, I would say, that if you've taken advice from uh, the correct people and you enter into a transaction of this type, that there would be any real difficulty that a court would ever find that this was a decision that no other body of trustees would have made. Then a few other trustee considerations. Um, one thing that comes up in uh, bulk annuity transactions that's quite a difficult one is the question of discretionary benefits. So uh, ensuring the straightforward benefits that are paid out of the plan is quite straightforward. 
uh, discretionary benefits are a bit more complicated in that uh, there may be discretion around the level of increase that might be paid on pensions and payment. There might be discretion around uh, pay benefits payable on death. So some schemes would say, for example, that if there's no spouse, you can pay a death benefit to somebody else, um, another person in, in a defined class of people. That's obviously more difficult to insure, and a decision would have to be made really around whether you're going to ask the insurer to insure around discretionary benefits. Uh, are you going to fix that? Are you going to say to the insurer, we're always going to exercise the discretion in this way and try and insure that? Are you going to leave that out of the insurance package at all? Presumably, it increases the um, price of the premium quite significantly if you're trying to insure benefits where there are discretions being exercised and, and there's uncertainty around how they will be exercised. Data protection is obviously going to be an issue. It's a subject nobody is that fond of, um, but it's certainly become more central in recent times. In a transaction like this, there will be data passing, obviously, from the trustees to the insurer and possibly onwards then to reinsurers. Um, certainly, as a base first step, you need to think about what basis you have for sharing data with the insurer. We think it's likely that you would be able to rely on a legitimate interest ground in this circumstances because you're promoting the purpose for which the scheme was created. You're entering into a transaction that's going to allow benefits to be paid. Privacy notices would need to be checked to see that they cover um, this type of data sharing. Your privacy notice is supposed to explain to people how their data may be used into the future. So if something like this wasn't envisaged, you'd probably amend um, your privacy notice. That said, most privacy notices do cover the sharing of data with insurers because it's necessary already for things like death benefits. In terms of whether you'd need a data sharing agreement, I think it's likely that the trustees and the insurer would be considered independent controllers, so there's no legal requirement as such to have a data sharing agreement in place, but that's not to say that one shouldn't be put in place. Um, I think with a data sharing exercise of this size and level, you probably would put an agreement in place that would cover things like um, the insurer having uh, satisfactory security arrangements in place around data, that they would only use it for the use that you're giving it to them for and um, various other matters like that. Then, and while I don't think this is necessarily a particularly risky area for trustees to be involved in, I think any major transaction probably merits a look at the trustee protections that are in place both under the scheme rules and under insurance. Um, we'd always recommend that the indemnity provisions under the trustee and rules are looked at. In the recent GDPR exercises that came to light for a number of our trustee clients that they maybe weren't, the indemnity wasn't drafted as widely as they might have expected. So something like this could give an opportunity to broaden your indemnity slightly and or to put in insurance if you don't have insurance already in place. Then just to mention a few employer considerations, and I think John actually covered a number of these already. So back to the investment power, some employers do have uh, control over the investment power and could actually take steps to require this transaction or you know, require a transaction of this nature or indeed to veto it. Um, employers would obviously want to consider whether there is a top-up uh, contribution required to fund an arrangement of this type and the reason they might be willing to make that contribution if indeed such a contribution is required is that ultimately if they enter into this if the trustees do enter into a transaction of this nature it should minimize the risk of an unexpected need for additional contributions from the employer at least in respect of this tranche of employees into the future and then I think the other thing employers should think about is because this um, investment really 
provides no return. It's just matching your um, liability for the pensioners are the most likely people to be covered by it. If the employers are going to be suggesting a more aggressive um, investment strategy for after the transaction is entered into, that's probably something that needs to be raised with the trustees at an early stage. So I'm going to hand you over now to Darren to cover the insurance element. Thanks, Shane. Uh, evening, everyone. Um, so I suppose uh, from my perspective, I'm, a, I'm an insurance lawyer, right? So when I come in uh, to do the first couple of these deals that I worked on, um, you come into a meeting room uh, full of people. These transactions enormous in the amount of people that get involved. Um, and you come in as an insurance lawyer, and there's lots of actuaries, people like John who speak as John speaks, and people like Jane who speaks as Jane. So trustees speak, and pensions speak, and trustees speak, and actuaries speak. As an insurance lawyer, I remember thinking to myself, what on earth am I doing here? Um, I can't understand what they're talking about. But from an insurance law concept, if you look at doing a, a buy-in, it's actually fairly straightforward. So albeit all the things that John and Jane talk about, I find very complicated, the pricing and the trem lines and the investment strategy and all of that, and the trustees having to worry about uh, trustee pension um, securities of, of members and all of that kind of stuff. When you look at the actual key transaction documents, I'm just going to look at these for five, ten minutes, uh, that you enter into in relation to a buy-in, actually fairly straightforward, right? So I just want to look at some of the key principles. I think there is, there is, um, there is a, a degree of kind of uncertainty as to how complicated are these transactions. And I said, the, the pure transaction and the buy-in size, uh, I realized, after going through one, are, are fairly straightforward. So if you look at it, first of all, so why, as a, as a trustee, what are you getting? Right? So if you're a trustee, you enter into a buy-in, what do you do? What are you entering into? Actually enter into a fairly simple insurance contract. Right? So what you get is you get an indemnity from the insurance company. As a trustee, you get an indemnity from the insurance company. If the insurance company is going to pay you a certain amount of money every month to cover the payment that's due to your pension scheme members. I think you have that language right. So it's very basic in terms of what you're getting. Okay? And so there's a real certainty there. I found it very interesting. There's a real certainty there in that you're a trustee and you're managing these investment, these investment assets. You're looking to make a particular return to make a, a payment every month. And then all of a sudden you're moving to a much more certain situation where you say, right, we'll take these assets, we'll give them to the insurance company, and instead the insurance company is now guaranteeing us under the contract a certain pay, payments are going to be made every month. So it's really, for me, it's really kind of simple, but very kind of neat perspective in terms of you're mo removing that level of risk that you have as a trustee. And so... To me, the kind of benefit for the trustee was immediately obvious. Um, and then you say, well, wh wh why is that good? Insurance companies, by their nature, are very heavily regulated. So you're moving from a situation where you, as a trustee, you're relying on this kind of investment strategy, you're managing these assets, you've got an employer sitting behind it, and all of a sudden you're in a situation where instead you're dealing with a regulated insurance company. And I suppose John talked about the benefits for insurance companies from a Solvency 2 from a Solvency 2 perspective. But what I'd say from a Solvency 2 perspective is the level of regulation now of insurance companies from a Solvency 2 perspective is even further increased. Right? There's a greater level of regulation from a Solvency 2 perspective, this risk-based regulatory approach that we have. And we've never had a failure of an insurance company in Ireland, uh, anywhere if, um, or, 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 or the UK. And yet you now have this increased level of, of supervision, which I think means it's more unlikely that you would have such a situation arising. So uh, it's a very, um, a very, a very, very simple uh, contractual uh, arrangement that's been entered into by the trustee, but one that's given them a great degree of certainty uh, from an insurance contract perspective. Um, that being said, 
uh, from a legal perspective, you always have to think about the worst case scenario. So what do you think about from a legal perspective? Well, you're thinking about, the, the main issue you're thinking about as a lawyer to a trustee in particular is, what if there is a failure of the insurance company? So what if this insurance company enters into an insolvency situation? People say, oh, that's never going to happen. And you'll say, well, actually, these arrangements could be entered into for years. It could be 10, 20, 30 years in these things. So the question then is, well, how do you try and protect the position of the trustee under the contract? And my experience in the deals we've worked on, the real negotiation is then around what are the termination rights of the trustee? In what situation can a trustee terminate the contract and try to get back the premium that's being paid across? And so they're, they're, I suppose they're what you'd expect. And it's really all then around say, well, what are the triggers or what are, what, what are the kind of, what are the situations that would identify to you as a trustee that this particular insurance company might be in difficulty? And what you're looking at then is, well, what's the solvency coverage ratio of the insurance company, right? Um, has there been a breach of, the, a breach of the obligations under the contract by the insurer? So what you're thinking about there is really non-payment, a monthly, a monthly, monthly payments being missed. Um, has there been a change of control of insurer? So you as a trustee, it's kind of interesting when you see these, the trustees really focus hugely on which insurance company are we going to actually contract with. Um, surprised at the level of due diligence that people do. They look at all these really big, large insurance companies and they really take their time and put a huge amount of due diligence and effort into trying to pick the right insurance company. But I suppose what you're saying then is we pick that insurance company for a reason. And if that insurance company is sold to somebody else or some other, someone else comes in, we might not be happy to deal with them going forward. So those, you know, ability to terminate for change of control is something that trustees really uh, are keen on. But any restrictions imposed by a regulator is an obvious one, but I suppose if some restrictions are imposed by the regulator in terms of kind of uh, investment strategy that a bigger insurer could have, and we've seen that in the Irish market, it's not unknown that the regulator might come in and say, look, we're going to restrict the kind of investments you might make as an insurer, uh, restrict the kind of classes of business that you can write, even though it might not be directly relevant to this business, it might be an indication to the particular trustee that there's a problem here with this insurer. And finally, of course, the obvious one that we hope we would never see would be administration or liquidation of the insurance company, which brings you on to a point these first few um, might never arise, but the, the liquidation point or the administration of an insurer is one, I suppose, we saw here, I suppose, with Quinn, would it ever happen with a life insurance company? You'd think not. You'd think the regulator under Solvency 2 would intervene much more quickly. But the question for you is, if that were to happen, how can you protect the trustee? So let's say you wake up in the morning and there's a thing in the Irish Times, oh, look, ex-life insurance company has had an administrator appointed or it's gone into insolvency. And you're a trustee and you put a huge amount of your eggs into that basket. What's, what's your protection? Um, and ultimately, your protection is, do you go or do you not go to a collateral arrangement? And that's what Jane and John have talked about. And it's just, it's just something I suppose the trustees are going to have to consider. The question, I suppose, is whether the price that you'd pay for collateral, a collateral arrangement, would be worth it. Uh, given the given the risk that you would perceive of, of your insurer actually going insolvent, and so what is what does collateral look like? Right, people talk about collateral. What is it? Very basic concept in any of these deals is if your assets put into a particular custody account, you can charge over the account, and there are certain triggers for that. So there's certain trigger times when you can actually enforce that collateral or enforce your security over your collateral. And so the question then would be, well, when can I enforce? And usually, typically, the way it's done is to say, right, if one of those termination rights that we discussed arises, the trustee can terminate the contract and is immediately looking for, for a, a termination payment to come back. So very simple. You terminate, the, terminate your insurance policy. You say, trustee, give me my assets back. And the trustee still has to give your assets back. And if the trustee fails to give your assets back in a very short period of time, 
the ability then to f- force collateral over a pile of assets in a particular custody account. So what you do is you trigger a collateral and you point the receiver. The receiver goes in and takes control of those assets. That's a very strong position for a trustee to be in. A situation where a trustee has collateral over assets sitting in a custody account and has a first charge over those and priority, of any, and priority over anybody else uh, who might be, have any dealings or have any kind of li- uh, rights against that insurance company. So it's, again, it's a very simple collateral structure. It's putting assets into a custody account. You point one of your normal custodians, whether it's the HSBCs or the JP Morgans or Deutsche Banks, wherever it is, they're managing that. Uh, they're holding that as a custodian, they're holding those assets, but you've got a charge over it. You can, you can enforce your charge in circumstances where a termination arises and the, the, the insurer fails to pay back your money. So it's a very simple collateral arrangement. But it's something trustees, I think, if we go, if we look at more buy-ins in the Irish market, it's something trustees are going to have to consider, give consideration to. Am I willing to pay the price to collateralise the deal so I have that protection in my Armageddon scenario if there's a problem with the insurance company? And then I suppose you say, well, how do I know when I'm going to, how do I know when I'm going to be able to enforce my security? And I said, well, you look for as many early, early uh, trigger warnings as possible. So you can talk about, uh, say then if there is a right of the trustee to, if there is a right of the trustee to terminate, the insurer then should be under an obligation to notify you if something's happened. If it's gone below a certain particular percentage on its, on its sovereignty capital cover, uh, coverage ratios, uh, if there's been a material breach of his obligations under the contract, you should have an obligation to notify the trustee of that so the trustee can then can sit down as a board and say, right, what are we going to do? Are we going to terminate the contract? Are we going to look for a collateral back? Are we going to try and force our security? So it's important then to build those notification rights into the contract. Again, very simple. What does the insurer have to tell you? When do they have to tell you? And what kind of rights do you want as against the insurance company as a trustee? Um, and finally, I suppose it's just interesting in these contracts, I haven't seen this kind of set up in any other arrangement before, but it's common in these arrangements that when you have a buy-in, typically the trustee will have the right to move to buy-out. So there's an, an, the trustee has the right in the contract to call at some stage to move to a buy-out after a particular period of time. So you know, I was talking to a number of the insurance companies in town before today to say, why do people do it like this? Why, why, do, you move, go, why do you go buy-in first and then go to a buy-out? And it's interesting, one of the kind of senior sales guys in one of the insurance companies said to me, he feels that in Ireland, there's a real attachment by trustees to the schemes, that they feel they've come through, a lot of them have come through a very difficult financial crisis. Uh, and there's almost this kind of um, emotional attachment now to the schemes that you've guided them through to a particular point, And people are very reluctant to let go of that arrangement. It's kind of found that interesting. And so what people are happier to say is, right, we'll go to a buy-in for a period of time. But we'll make sure we have the, the right to go to a buyout after a certain period if that's what we want to do. But by that stage, we should have demonstrated or proven uh, to the members that this is actually a good insurance company, that they're standing behind us and they're making those monthly payments. And at that point in time, then they may be ready to kind of let go of the scheme and to bring, um, and to bring the insurance company in full time, where the insurance company essentially takes over the arrangement as, as directly involved from a, from a contractual perspective with the members. So I just, I just found that kind of interesting. Um, and that in the, every, at that point, then everything moves across. The administration moves across to the insurance company, um, and the relationship with the scheme members is removed from the, um, removed from the trustee and moves directly to, to the insurance company. So you're, you're winding up your scheme. Um, so as I said, from a, from a, from a contract law perspective, or from an insurance contract law perspective, they're very simple. The, 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 the buy-in transactions are actually quite simple, much simpler than I would have expected them to be. Um, and it's really then the matter of making sure that you have your, your pricing right, your investment guidelines, your actuarial piece right. But from an insurance perspective, I think the message for, for, for the market should be that they're, they're quite uh, simple from a, from a contractual perspective.
Join us again for the third and final part of our seminar series on bulk annuity transactions in which Samantha Brown and Rachel Pinto from Herbert Smith Freehills share some lessons they have learned from their UK market experience and provide some tips on preparing for a de-risking project of this nature. Thanks for listening to the Matheson Pensions Podcast. For more information, go to matheson.com forward slash pensions. Thank you.